The Cosmic Adverse Podcast, written and read by Nick Perry. Book 1, Fireside Flush. Argument. The casualties of a forgotten era lay scattered along a sun-speckled ground. A cool breeze blows over the battle-scarred corpses, eulogizing the memories of their splintered remains. These giants once flourished over the land, but now they serve as a reminder to all who would pick at their carcasses in a sacrosanct act of survival. Now they burn in an eternal solar effigy, having surrendered to their stagnation. Airy whispers wash over the fallen like the Earth Mother's hand in absolution. Twilight's cover yielded the swift slight, a gentle reminder to those who would heed the insistent beck and call of the darkness. The oldest truth, neither cruel nor just, takes her kind as swiftly as those who would set themselves ablaze. The deceased stalwarts now serve as a place of repose for weary travelers searching for quiet solace. Such disparate wanders would relax and remark on the surrounding beauty as shriveled, jaundiced fingertips fall around them. Ambrosial paladins, saturated with the sympathy of their elements, tower over claimed land. These organic knights watch as the marrow of life teems with conflict. Their melancholy resembles the aegis of mentors who had once been entrusted to provide shelter, nourishment, and care. The natural magnates stare silently at the amber radiance shimmering through their progeny, listening to the constant fluttering. The late afternoon sun sprinkles itself through the survivors' vestiges. Nature, in its most brutal form, reflects all that is mortal man, peaceful, violent, full of love and self-immolating. It is in nature that all creatures find reasons to survive the millennia on a dense ball of gas and dirt hurtling through the empty vacuum of space. Yet it is not the cosmos for which the earthen mother concerns herself. No, she believes in the mortal odyssey shared in a corticopia of desire and distaste. We are given the responsibility to balance the naissance of nature and the destructive prowess of her creations, to regard her domain with the same affection as timber watching its sapling offspring. Gods of the elements, these protectors of wonder, reveal themselves in grand displays of power to us. But even they know the oldest truth, handed down from the unknown source of primordial soup that bared all that was, is, and ever will be. That truth, simply put, all things, sooner or later, must come to an end. Prologue A cold wind pierced the black void of twilight above the floating islands of Cornelia. The Keeperdom's colossal chunks of earth hovered up and down in a ballet of giants. Sheer cliffs of overgrown foliage and waterfalls resembling upside-down geysers shaped the edges of Cornelia's massive geographical oddities. These pieces of earth held entire cities while they soared thousands of feet above a fog-laden ocean. The isle's graceful dance was fueled by Cornelia's residents drawing upon the wind's canta, or magical powers. A proud bunch, Cornelians prided themselves on their ability to propel their homesteads upwards and out of gravity's grasp. In the center of the delicate bobbing sat the Keeperdom's capital city of Karna, named after the first advisor to Cornelia's immortal ruler. The city sat upon a floating archipelago connected by suspension bridges. Karna's cityscape was composed of buildings seven or eight stories high and adorned in a Beaux-Arts-style architecture unique to the Cornelian people. 
Paved roads, a rare sight in the world known as Nevera, wrap their ways through the city and between buildings. Inside each window set candles flickering in the warm summer breeze, like fireflies searching for their mates. High above the city of earthen lights, the mansion of Cornelia's ruler, the keeper of the wind named Samuel Caggy, shone like a beacon of hope in an otherwise barren heaven. The keeper's mansion shared the capital city's ornate architecture and alabaster palette. This evening, an uneasy twilight refused to reveal its usually spectacular display of stars, opting instead to cover itself in rolling clouds far above the whitewashed palace. Cornelia's royal sentries, dressed in tidy cobalt uniforms, began a routine patrol through Karna's floating masses on the back of mammoth golden eagles. The sound of the rider's steeds, slow, powerful swoops, brought comfort to the people of Karna who lay resting in their homes. They flew by their keeper's mansion, unaware of the existence of two shadowy figures on its roof. The dark outlines of two men moved about the mansion's gravel roof with haste, their flat shadows slicing through the mansion's incandescence. Where light should have revealed the full features of the human forms, only the blurred edges of dark voids ran the length of their bodies and continued into long shadows. The figures slid around like supernatural handymen as they worked, diligently prepping the area for the coming chaos. An unusual, dark canta kept the duo just out of focus from the wandering, curious eyes of the Eagle Mountain guards patrolling the skies. One of the shadowed figures stopped for a moment, sat down on the edge of the mansion, and allowed his legs to dangle over the roof's side. He was plump. Even the blurred edges of the dark canta that covered his body couldn't hide that fact. The seated figure was actually nothing more than a boy named Kenny Zapalka. Kenny, an apparition who had seen no more than 18 harvests in his lifetime, had been sent on this mission by the Keeper of the Flame himself. It was a curious move on the Keeper's part to personally seek out this boy, as Kenny was the type of soldier who preferred the comfort of the army barracks to getting his hands dirty. Kenny was joined on the rooftop by another shadowy figure, a man who went by the name of Roke Moso. Roke was more than twice Kenny's age and was best described by the others as, well, old. The man was not known for freely doling out positive reminders. No, Roke displayed a rather sunny disposition that was all too common within the ranks of the Afrosian military. Kenny looked to his right where Roke stood hunched over a bundle of ropes. It was obvious that something bothered the boy, whether it was the mission at hand or, more likely, the uncomfortable chafing caused by the dark canta that had been drawn upon him. The darkness covering the boy seemed to fill him with a deep sense of malaise, and he didn't need any canta to encourage the butterflies in his stomach. The boy rubbed his arms furiously like a person possessed. The blurred edges of his body felt like small pieces of hair that had been glued all over him. The canta gave him an invisible itch, and most likely a rash, along his chest that he would scratch almost constantly. The Keeper of the Flame, Tantra Shugara, had drawn this dark canta upon everyone taking part in this covert operation. Candy's mind flashed back to that initial feeling of intense heat as the black slime covered his body, replacing his pale skin with something less human. Kenny finished his outburst of action with a shiver and regarded the front and back of his hand. 
It was a thick shade of ebony, thanks to the canta, and the boy let the mansion's floodlights beam through his hand before promptly placing it back in his lap. Kenny sighed, then looked over to the black figure of Roke. The elder shadow was busily tying ropes around the decorative banisters located at each re- corner of the roof. So, Kenny said in a high-pitched, whiny voice, hoping to ease those nasty butterflies fluttering in his stomach. Tell me something. Ah, fuck off, Roke replied as he continued the task at hand. Oh, come on, Kenny said disappointedly. Tell me a story to pass the time. No, the hunched man grumbled, sending a shiver down Kenny's spine. The boy sighed once more, then looked up at the dark clouds twirling overhead. This is such an incredible sight, Kenny remarked. I mean, look at us. We have to be, what, six, seven, eight thousand feet above the ocean? I wish the others back home could see us now. I always wondered what the world would look like from a Cornelian's point of view. No wonder they hold themselves in such high regard. Everyone else just seems like tiny specks from... Shut up, boy! Rogue stammered through his slack jaw. The man was more than twice his companion's age and less than half his width. It didn't help that Roke's tolerance for stupidity and idle banter was non-existent. The boy sat silently for a moment, then sighed once more as the wind picked up around them. Kenny got to his feet, joined the shadow of Roke at his side, and picked up a handful of rope. The warm summer breeze that met them when they first arrived at the mansion's roof had since been replaced by a cold, shrill wind. Kenny would have sworn that snow was on its way, though he had never seen snow, having lived in the jungle and all. Growing up in the keeperdom of Afarit was like living in a perpetual sauna. Kenny compared it to a sweaty armpit filled with disease and chaos. It was no place for a pale, pudgy kid like him. How Kenny was born under the flame sigil was anyone's guess. The boy fidgeted with his rope, mimicking the actions of the hunched old man. The wind whistled a high-pitched tune as the two figures exchanged more terse words. So, Kenny started again. The plan is we capture the girl... Roke hissed at the boy. It was the sound adults used when silencing ill-mannered children, but Kenny seemed to pay it no mind. Blow the place sky high, shush, Roke commanded. A runner back home to shut up, the hunchman interjected. He threw his ropes on the ground and met the boy shadowy face to shadowy face. Shut the fuck up. In the name of the keeper of the flame and protector of the scorian throne, just shut up. We don't need to spook anyone, and we especially don't want to ruin his surprise. We're not the ones bringing her back. He is. Each hard consonant spoken by Roke was joined by a shower of spit and the foul scent of weeks-old fish. Kenny reeled backwards in disgust. Okay, the boy said, raising his hands in front of him. Jeepers keepers. Roke picked up the bundle of ropes he had thrown, tied one more knot around a banister, and dropped the remaining rope near the edge of the mansion's gravel roof. There, the old man snarled. Everything's set, and I barely needed your help, boy. Thank the keeper, because you're as worthless as you are fat. Now come help me lower the ropes for the others. We've got a whole squadron of men underneath this flying island, just waiting to light this place up like the keeper's holy day. Roke and Kenny parted ways and walked to each bundle of ropes on the roof, kicking them off the edge. The rope sprung taut with a whap as they unfurled down the length of the mansion's exterior. Kenny and Roke steadied themselves and stared into the black night, waiting for the signal. 
In the dense fog that covered the ocean below, the soft flapping of navy blue phoenixes created visible contrails as they glided under Karna's dancing clumps of earth. The birds' flaming torsos, normally a bright crimson with scattered specks of amber, had been heated to the color of cobalt in an effort to camouflage themselves with the murky waters. More of the blurred, shaded figures rode on the back of the imposing flame-feathered creatures, a thick tungsten saddle between the riders and their steeds. Swooping between the bottom tips of the floating rocks, the riders began their slow ascent to the mansion in a careful effort to remain hidden from would-be watchmen. The phoenixes soon reached the underbelly of the palace's floating grounds and spiraled upwards in a slow, helixical pattern. They passed the top of the mansion as silent as the grave and continued their climb until they were in a position high above the mansion's roof. They, too, waited for the signal. The smell of sulfur spewed from every pore of the giant flying beast on which the transport had been built. The Hajvan, a large, chestnut-colored creature lined with caudal fins and covered in slimy, translucent secretions, composed itself by adjusting the tentacles of its hindquarters. The living transport's bridge was little more than a glorified circus tent secured to the beast's back using the crudest of apparatuses. Intertwined robes routed around the Hajvan's underbelly, and stakes lay planted in the creature's back, providing support for the tent as the wind picked up. Glowing emerald cakes of the Hajvan's blood provided outlines of the stake's locations and acted as an easy way to locate where it had been used as the keeper's preferred beast of burden. The monster's breathing was heavy and guttural as it carried the weight of the men and their supplies on its back. At the front of the tent, near the Hajvan's head, a wooden platform had been built as a poor substitute for a proper deck. It suited its purpose, however, and provided an easy access to and from the ground when it was fully extended beyond the creature's girth. This mission's commander, Kost Dianspar, was a general in the keeper's loosely defined army. The tall, slender man stood at the head of the creature on this bridge. He had been waiting for this day, planning for the time when the keeper of the flame would secure the destiny of his people. No, Kost corrected himself. A destiny secured for his people. General Dianspar was nearly a head taller than and almost thrice the age of the soldiers who had been selected to carry out this mission. Tandrus had chosen Kost to personally lead this boorish group of untrained yokels due to the general's unwavering devotion to the flame. General Dianspar, like all distinguished men in Afrit, was a Saramaj in the Keeper's army. The Saramaj were an elite class of warriors in the eyes of the Keeper. They had been selected for the honor of learning how to harness, and more importantly master, the fire's kanta. Unlike the other Keepers, Tandros did not allow mastery of the flame to any and all who would be born in his Keeperdom of Aphorite. No, it was reserved for only those who the Keeper deemed worthy of that great wisdom, and Kost had been invited into that elite group. While the nomadic tribesmen of Afri could use Kanta to perform small miracles, such as snapping their fingers to start a bonfire, Kost and the Saramaj could convert entire jungles into raging infernos. Such was the power of the Keeper of the Flame. Tandra Shugara had treated Kost like a son, even going so far as to bestow a new name to cleanse him of his own barbaric past in the jungles. The Keeper of the Flame had given the general the name Kost, 
a name that meant burnt in the ancient tongue of the deities, when he had been merely a nomadic boy in the wilderness. He had been burnt indeed, but not by the hand of Tandros. Several decades ago, when puberty was but a twinkle in his eye, Kost found himself the only surviving member of his family after a nearby tribe instigated an attack due to a territory dispute. He had escaped with major burns that were visible even today. The right side of his neck looked like pale beef jerky, which continued along his back and down the length of his left arm. It was Tandros himself who had found Kost's limp body lying in a stream, and the keeper fetched a physio, or medicine doctor, to nurse him back to health. When the boy came to, Kost accepted the new name given to him, discarding his birth name from that day forward. Kost, now a general in the African army, followed the keeper's orders like a well-trained dog. Kost had been waiting in the open air until Karna came into sight. When the city and its many islands filled the length of his vision, the general returned to the tent and found a tabernacle full of army personnel dressed in the crimson armor worn by those who served in the keeper's army. They were standing at attention, facing Tandro Shugara, who sat at the back of the transport's Hogan on top of a small platform. A shaded carpet, the color of Malbec, welcomed the general upon his entrance, and he walked the length of it to where the keeper sat. The tent's cramped interior was lined with deerskin and torches, the latter of which created pockets of deep shadow throughout the space. General Danspar bowed before the keeper and said, My infinite spirit, the men are in position. Cornelia awaits. The keeper's face and body were covered with a black cowl as he sat overlooking his sea of blood-red soldiers. Cost watched as a grin crawled the length of the keeper's grimy, cinnamon visage under the black hood. Very good, Cost. The keeper snarled through dingy yet sharp teeth. Tandros spoke as if he held a mouthful of glass marbles. It's all going to plan, I presume. Our timing is impeccable, Cost said. They have no idea. Good. Now, send the signal, the keeper replied. Tandros adjusted himself in his chair, for he too had waited for this moment. The keeper was reminded of the moment of his birth, when the creator had bestowed the power to keep the flame with him. He was only a small child then, a god's plaything. And as he matured, Tandros found himself cataloging a history of wars between himself and the other keepers. He liked to think of it as keeping the world an interesting place to live. Some would like to help these inferior beings that have infested the world like a plague, the keeper thought as he watched his most loyal general bowing to him. They are merely animals in this world, beasts of burden. The other keepers are too stupid in their empathy for these dogs, and Sam Kagi is the stupidest of them all. Kost raised the mutilated hand of his youth to the small opening at the top of the transport's tent. I draw the cant of flare, he proclaimed. A bright flame formed in the Saramaja's open palm. It grew twice the size of Kost's head before he sent it careening upwards through the opening and into the night sky. The heavens above Karna absorbed the flare into its darkness, morphing the sky into a twisted, sickening swath of jaundiced crimson. It reminded Kost of an infected wound. Streams of similarly shadowed figures climbed onto the level grounds of the mansion and crossed the expansive green space of the royal grounds. 
When they reach the alabaster walls of the palace, the black shadows climb the ropes tied to the mansion's roof like ants crawling up their hill. The blurred shadows of Rope and Canny were soon joined by three dozen likewise shaded men on top of the keeper of the Wind's mansion. They moved quickly around the roof's edge, unwrapping the ropes that had been carefully tied to the mansion's metal rafters. The free end of the ropes were tied hastily by the men around their black torsos, and the shadowy figures were soon rappelling down the walls of the light-soaked mansion. The men bounced once on the wall and then plunged feet first into the mansion's top floor windows. The explosion of glass filled the keeper's home with high-pitched shrieks announcing the intruder's entrance. The inhabitants of the mansion, from the house staff to the guards, to the one considered Tandros's treasure, were quickly woken up by the dark figure's sudden appearance. Movement inside the mansion fiercely contrasted the serene slumber in which its inhabitants had been engaged only moments earlier. Tandros's shadows filled the equally dark interiors with the titian afterglow of the flames canta as they moved through the home. Once they had entered the mansion, each of the blurred intruders unsheathed their choice of weapon. A large variety of short swords, one-handed axes, and small bats bobbed their way through the hallways. The intruders used their free hands to draw the fire's canta as they continued blazing a trail through the royal palace. The heat from the flames could be felt by everyone within the confines of the ensuing chaos. Sweat poured from the shaded figures as adrenaline rushed through their bodies in a tidal wave of pure energy. The smell of burning wood and, perhaps more pungent, the smell of burning flesh replaced the smell of fresh paint that had been lingering in the mansion after a recent remodeling project. It was evident from the burn marks along the rooms and entryways that this first wave of uninvited guests was not interested in searching for someone. They were clearing a path. Outside, phoenixes swarmed the altitudes above the mansion and its internal chaos while their riders drew fireball cantas. The volley of fireballs pummeled the mansion's rooftop and surrounding greenway, causing the deep pockmarks in their wake. Shockwaves from the destruction echoed throughout the city of Karna as plumes of dirt flew high into the skies above the royal palace. Karna's other floating islands swayed away from the mansion as the city's quiet dance reacted to the disruption of its harmonious ballet with chaos, fire, and death. More and more candles flickered in homes throughout the city as, resi as residents woke to the sight of their keeper's home being ransacked. The mansion's roof lay open like a mouth gaping at the surrounding pandemonium as the encircling phoenixes brightened their plumes into menacing shades of crimson and amber. The riders pulled their steeds in wide perimeters around the royal grounds to protect against outside influences, but the wind's cavalry was soon on its way. Cornelia's 120th Flight Squadron of Eagle Riders were scrambled and quickly entered the chaos from the south as the Africian phoenixes quickened their pace around the mansion's perimeter. The golden accents of the Eagle Riders' cobalt-colored steel armor shone with the reflection of the fiery onslaught. Each rider held an oversized pole arm adorned with a single incredible blade attached to the top as they closed in on the mansion. The hazel-colored eagles on which the Cornelian men rode were nearly twice the size of the crimson phoenixes surrounding the mansion. The bronze armor of the Cornelian steeds reflected brightly against the dark skies. The eagles' amber beaks squawked as their riders persisted with orders to speed up as two of the phoenixes broke from the circling bevy to meet the interceptors head-on. The two phoenixes and their riders, twins by the names of Tim and Aiken Kasa, proved to be nothing more than a distraction to the Cornelian eagle riders, and the distraction worked flawlessly. 
The Phoenixes were outmatched in terms of numbers and brawn, but they easily outmaneuvered the stocky eagles that attempted to give chase. The eagle riders drew Wincantas to no avail as the Phoenixes dove out of the way of the magic. Tim and Aiken drew their own keeper's cantas, a barrage of small, rapidly fired balls of flame. A succession of the fire cantas made quick work of the large eagles too slow to react to the nimble flight of their enemy. One by one, the Cornelian mounts fell out of the sky as the flames cantas pierced through their feathered bodies. Bungie Mendengung, a young eagle rider from the small town of Angen, watched Aiken's phoenix perform a barrel roll above him in his mount. The same rapid-fire attack that had taken the lives of his fellow Windriders now pummeled the Cornelian. But Bungie, the blonde-haired, blue-eyed risk-taker, hoisted himself into a crouched position on top of his saddle and raised his polearm above his head. The offending phoenix and its rider performed another barrel roll around the large eagle. As Aiken Kassa descended under the eagle's belly, Bungie pushed away from his steed's saddle and jumped headlong into the darkness below. Bungie's jump had been well-timed. His body was quickly met with a tungsten saddle of the encircling phoenix. The eagle rider landed just behind the phoenix-mounted twin with a light thud. Holding onto the saddle, the eagle rider brought himself in line with his blurry armored foe and plunged his polearm deep into the neck of the shadowed figure. The blurred edges of Aiken's dark canta dissipated into the night air and the remaining dark slime seeped off of the Casa boy's body, whose life the eagle rider had ended. Bungie pulled his polearm out of the lifeless rider and watched as the dead body slid off of the phoenix with the black slime in quick pursuit. The eagle rider plopped into the phoenix's saddle and attempted to maneuver the flaming fowl back towards his eagle. The phoenix did not respond to Benji Mendengung's commands, however, because in the world of Navarra, the bond of the phoenix and its rider do not break with the rider's death. The phoenix glided wildly through the cold air. Bungie held tightly onto its tungsten saddle when he felt the metal under his fingers getting warmer. The saddle hummed a bright glow as the phoenix climbed into the night sky. Soon the tungsten matched the bird's bright red color. Bungie's phoenix ascended higher and higher, and the saddle became hotter and hotter until the tungsten saddle morphed into amber-colored liquid. Bungie found himself being engulfed in the bird's immolating feathers and tried to call for his original steed. The engine-born eagle rider looked back towards his mount through watery eyes as the phoenix burst into a spectacular display of exploding shards. Bungie's body was instantly consumed in the phoenix's final act. Meanwhile, northwest in the distance, Tandros's Hodgevon entered the Cornelian airspace containing Samuel Kagi's mansion and the ensuing chaos. It didn't take long for the Hodgevon to maneuver through the air battle between the Cornelian Eagles and the Africian Phoenixes, and this royal transport soon found itself perched on the spacious grounds that surrounded the majority of Samuel Kagi's mansion. The crude bridge extended over the creature's girth, and a near-endless supply of crimson-armored soldiers spilled out of the Hodgevon's tent and over the wooden plank. They tripped over themselves in their hasty advance towards the mansion. The Keeper of the Wind's home which had once shone in the darkness in an ambient glow, now resembled an oversized block of Swiss cheese. Fire and smoke puffed out of the mansion's pockmarks, created during the ongoing maelstrom of fireball cantus from the Phoenix Riders. Tandro Shugara stepped down from the Hodgevon and onto the floating island's grass with his mutant hoofed feet. Flanked on both sides by Kost and several other Saramaj, 
the keeper of the flame casually strolled towards the other keeper's home. Tandros's legs, a forest of ebony tufts of hair covering chestnut skin, tensed with each step as they carried the dense frame of the bull man. The keeper wore a thick black cloak that covered his entire body, save for his chest, which continued his legs' otherworldly skin tone in an amalgamation of muscle and, and thick hair. He wore a maroon cape, secured around his neck by a golden necklace that bore the apparition sigil of an upside-down volcano, with lines zigzagging downwards from its upturned head. Tandros pulled back the black cowl as he moved forward, and the surrounding armies could feel the full force of his persona. His eyes burned with the fire of a suitor about to meet his prize. His disfigured lips turned upwards. Keeper kept his black, wavy hair as long and thick as possible, but not even Tandros could conceal the two matching nubs that had recently started growing on top of his head. A dog's long snout had replaced the immortal man's human nose, while his teeth had sharpened into those normally reserved for a bear. This Keeper of the Flame, birthed by the creator and given the name Tandros Shugara, had been transfigured throughout the centuries into the monster who now ruled Aphorite. Tandros made his way across the grass landscaping towards the mansion while the air battle continued above him, and the commotion inside the alabaster home grew louder as he honed in on the large oak doors that stood as the mansion's main entry. The surrounding chaos filled the keeper with a kind of glee never before experienced by the protector of the Scorian throne. Tandros soon reached the mansion's large oak doors and pushed them open with the force of twenty men. The doors opened into the home's large, open foyer, where Cornelia's elite guards, dressed in ceremonial cobalt robes and adorned with large ivory wings protruding from their backs, stood anxiously awaiting his arrival. The Keeper of the Flame pounced on the guards before they could react, grabbed one of the robed guards by his protruding wings, and pulled outwards from the guard's body. Tandros's Seramaj circled around the Keeper and his prey, confronting the sea of cobalt and wings that surrounded them. The keeper continued pulling on the wings as the captive soldier squirmed and screamed in pain. Tandros had grabbed Kuseno Buntal, a man from the nearby cluster of floating isles designated the province of Mola. He had been born and raised in a town so small that it spanned only one island, but he would occasionally fly into Karna to see relatives and to spend some time in the capital's shopping centers. Kuseno had always dreamed of becoming an elite windwalker like those in the stories that his grandfather used to tell him and he got his chance when, after the passage of Sixteen Harvests, Husseinu enlisted in the Kagi Military Academy in Karna. As with many kids in Cornelia who aim high, Kuseno couldn't make the grade at the academy and resigned himself to security detail. At Twenty-Seven Harvests, Mr. Bental was enjoined to a Mrs. Malam Bental. Their matrimony soon resulted in the arrival of little Molly Bental less than a year later. At Thirty-Four Seasons, Kuseno landed the quote-unquote prestigious position in the Kagi Mansion Ceremonial Guard. There he became little more than a glorified butler, standing at attention during formal occasions and tending to various odd jobs during slow periods. But he had been rewarded with the wings of the Keeper, a status symbol in the world of Cornelia. He had adorned those wings for nearly three harvests before tonight, and as for the work, well, it was better than nothing, or so he thought. The ripping sound of separating bone and sinew echoed through Kuseno's cobalt and bronze helmet. 
Kuseno flailed as he tried to remember his remedial security training. The look of, the, of pain that lined the man's face greatly contrasted the ecstasy that filled the keeper's core as Tandros flexed his biceps. The disjointed wings soon snapped as easily as twigs under one's foot during a peaceful walk. Kuseno's radii crunched together in the keeper's hands, and Tandros's face lit up with wide eyes and a tooth-filled smile that reflected the surrounding fire. A bucket's worth of blood sprayed the floor in behind Kuseno as his humeri, long bones that connected regal wings to a mortal spine, separated from his body. The husband, father, man from Mola, slumped to the ground in a heap of blood and muscle. Two gold medallions for each pair of wings ripped off these bastards. Tandro screamed as he lifted the ivory wings, now stained with Kuseno Bantal's blood, into the air. Crimson soldiers cheered loudly, and Tandros watched as his men made quick work of the enemy robes. The waves of cobalt-crested soldiers, stunned and transfixed in horror at the Keeper's terrible act, were caught off guard by the Crimson Army bearing down on them. The protector of the Scorian throne flung the empty wings in the air with a smug satisfaction and continued his trek towards his prize. He climbed the foyer's spiral staircase to the mansion's second floor and found himself at the beginning of a long hallway, the end of which lay the bedroom of Samuel Kagi's daughter. Burn marks lined the hallways and surrounded the door leading into the princess's sanctuary. As Tandros walked towards the white door at the end of the hallway, he ran a finger along the brown patchwork of scorched paint and plaster. He wanted to savor every second of this moment. Fortune was finally smiling down on him. The Keeper of the Flame reached the end of the hall and opened the door to reveal an alabaster bedroom replete with marble countertops and flooring. Tandros's hoofed feet clicked their way through the room as he walked towards the princess's bed. He quickly discovered that the large room was empty. The princess was nowhere to be found. The bullman continued his heavy gait around the bedroom as his confidence withered away to panic and anger. Every few steps resulted in a quick stop to inspect something in the room. A frame with a small painting of the princess and her friend made. The princess's hairbrush. A forest green scarf. Tandros grabbed the green scarf and buried his nose in the fine wool. Keeper took a deep breath and allowed the full scent of the princess to envelop his senses. He then tucked the scarf into his robe and continued his search. When Tantris had finished scouring the room, he walked to its center, disappointed that his investigation had yielded no sign of the princess. A look of disgust lay plastered on the keeper's face. Where are you, princess? Tantris growled to the empty room. His voice bounced around the vaulted ceilings. The keeper breathed heavily, allowing his anger to consume him. Then, in an effort to release his frustration, he drew a constant stream of canta that engulfed the room in flames. Silken bedsheets that lay disoriented from a rushed escape were instantly reduced to nothing more than a charred memory. The keeper relinquished his canta's assault on the bedroom and rushed out of the room to continue his fervent search. A petite feminine figure, dressed in a tight beige jumpsuit and matching cowl, ran through the chaotic hallways of the mansion. However, the girl found herself constantly backtracking through the home as she encountered black shadows and crimson-armored soldiers engaged in mortal combat with the familiar cobalt guards. The Keeper of the Wind had been prepared for just such an assault and had a backdoor escape route built into the home during construction. The girl just needed to find it. 
Explosions and cries of pain surrounded her, filling the girl with the inspiration she desperately needed to continue moving forward. The beige jumpsuit sprinted through the hallway, passing a small square grate in the wall before doubling back to it. The girl crouched down and ripped the grate from the wall to reveal a dark passageway. Found it, she thought to herself as she bent down on her hands and knees. Looking into the metallic vents, she knew it wouldn't be a fun trip, but if she hurried, she might just survive. The girl looked from side to side, from underneath her cowl, before crawling through the mouth of the vent. The mansion's escape route branched into several different escape routes, including a panic room five stories under the girl's feet. She knew that her father would be waiting outside for her, but wished that he would just leave to save himself. Her father was far more important to the realm than she, though the man constantly reminded her that that would not always be the case. This girl, who stood by her father's side as heir to his throne, had not been given an easy childhood. She had been constantly tutored in diplomacy, etiquette, and protocol. She had no real friends who could come to her rescue or who had even cared to try. She was nothing more than the result of the love between an immortal keeper and a very immortal woman. Sure, this girl who now crawled through the mansion's wobbly ventilation system had girlfriends with whom she would shop or share a coffee, but all of them wanted a piece of the royal pie. Now's not the time to be thinking about normalcy, the girl reminded herself, snapping back to, into the present. But the vent's aluminum floor bowed slightly as she carried herself through the small enclosure, the resulting loud clinking sound, thankfully, was being drowned out by the screams of the ceremonial sentries dying in the foyer. The girl, her face still covered by the shimmering cowl, soon reached the vent's outside door and kicked it open. She allowed herself to drop down onto the soft grass below, her robes wafting behind her as she fell. Samuel Kagi, the keeper of the wind and this girl's father, stood in the grassy knoll behind the mansion preparing his ashen-colored eagle, Air Park. Built more like a politician than a warrior, Samuel nonetheless wore the full battle raiment befitting Cornelia's keeper. Keeper climbed onto his trusted steed, his short silver hair contrasting the cobalt and bronze color of his full armor. His hair matched nicely with his rimless glasses. Sam's tan skin detailed itself as he plopped onto Air Park's leather saddle. The girl's petite figure cleared the escape route, and she ran towards her father as quickly as possible. Samuel Kagi looked up from Air Park and spotted his daughter sprinting through the onslaught. Quickly, the keeper shouted as he motioned towards the girl's blurred silhouette. The man's daughter bolted towards him, causing the wind to pull back her cowl. The determined face of Aaron Kagi, the princess of the wind, was revealed with dark auburn hair flowing behind her. Her matching brown eyes, burning with a fiery desperation, met those of her father. Her skin was soft and milky, though now it was heavily accented with pink splotches as she sprinted across the open grounds. Aaron's visage creased as she focused on delivering herself to her father's arms. As she moved closer, the threat of the chaos behind her seemed to dissipate into the distance. Aaron allowed a small smirk to form across her face, causing her eyes to focus even more on the chase at hand. She was secretly enjoying being the subject for whom this savagery was occurring. Aaron had nearly reached the keeper's location when a fireball landed between the father and daughter. Aaron reeled backwards and she landed on her hindquarters with a bone-crunching thud. The thick smoke burned the girl's eyes as she desperately struggled to stand up and continue the sprint towards her father. As Aaron got to her feet, a grimy, coffee-colored hand grabbed her by the back of her beige jumpsuit. She struggled against the hand holding her hostage, while another hand extended from the thick smoke. 
The free hand moved quickly and merely touched the soft spot on the back of the girl's head. Aaron's vision was sent spiraling, and the world fell into darkness. The princess's body collapsed into the arms of Tandro Shugara. Samuel drew a gale canta, and the smoke dissipated immediately. Tandro stood in the clearing with a smirk plastered across his face as he presented the limp body of the princess in his arms. Samuel's eyes lit up, and Airpark glided towards Tandros with raised talons and outstretched wings. The Keeper of the Flames shifted the princess over one of his shoulders and presented a free hand towards Samuel and Airpark. A tangle of sticky ebony cords and cables shot up from the ground and netted themselves around Aaron's father and the eagle. The cords pulled Sam into his mount and his mount towards the ground. The two of them grabbed at slimy ropes as many more wrapped themselves around the couple. Samuel clawed at the tightening black mess, shouting at the other keeper. Shugara, what in the hell is this shit, this black canta? Samuel explained. What are you thinking? What are you doing with my daughter? Tandro smiled as he watched the canta continue covering itself over the keeper of the wind. I have been chosen, Kagi, Tandros replied. It's all going to be for me. The Keeper of the Flame turned away from the man and beast struggling to free themselves from the overwhelming tangle of black cords. The walk back to the Hodgevon transport was relatively uneventful, as many of the Cornelian guards had already died at the hands of his Crimson Army. The Keeper of the Flame carried the princess over his shoulder as he traversed the open grounds back to the Hodgevon, holding her for all his men to see. Tandros and the princess reached the Hodgevon, where he climbed the plank and entered its tent. The bull man was followed by what remained of the crimson soldiers in black shadows. The Hodgevon lumbered itself back into the air. The beast then set its sights on returning home to Tandros's lair, the volcano called Mount Vur, located deep within the keeperdom of Afarit. Back at the grassy knoll, Samuel Kagi let loose a constant stream of profanity as more strands of the black residue covered its prey. The tangle of cords soon covered his whole body. Then at once they melted into a thick black slime, completely covering the keeper and his ashen eagle. The screams and shouts from the man fell silent as the two of them were reduced to a giant, moldering heap of slime. Far away from the evening's chaos, deep in the jungle's vaferite, Sir Seraphin bolted upright in his bed like a taut spring that had just been released. Panting and drenched in sweat, the boy looked through a mess of greasy black hair at his twilight-covered surroundings. He was still in his bed, in his room, safe from the nightmare that had pulled him back into the world of the living. Sir sighed, wiped a hand across his cheek, and forced himself back into an uneasy slumber. Thank you for listening to the Cosmic Adverse Podcast, Book 1, Fireside Flush. This is my first podcast, my first attempt at a podcast, so feel free to go to iTunes and leave me feedback. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is at Cosmic Adverse. You can also find us at our website, CosmicAdverse.com. We've set up a forum there, so feel free to join the forum and chat with other listeners. Goal for this podcast is to be uh, once a week, but uh, expect it to be every other week until we get into a rhythm. Other than that, uh, thanks for listening and see you next time.